Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Conventional optical systems, such as those found in cameras and microscopes, used curved lenses to bend and focus light. As a result, these systems tend to be bulky and difficult to miniaturize. To address this problem, researchers have created optical metasurfaces that are thin and flat. These meta-lenses bend and focus light like conventional lenses, while taking up much less space. Here I am in conversation with a meta-lens expert who co-founded a company that makes optical components for the consumer electronics, automotive, and smart robotics sectors. Metalens is a company that spun out of Harvard University in 2016 to commercialize meta-optics created in the lab of the applied physicist Federico Capasso. The company was co-founded by Rob Devlin, who is a former PhD student of Capasso's. Rob is CEO of Metalens, and he joins me down the line from Boston to talk about the company's technology. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thanks for having me on. Glad to talk about Metalens and the uh, Metasurfaces. So first things first, Rob, can you describe meta-optics in simple terms? How do they differ from conventional optical components that you know we'd have in a, a telescope or a microscope? So the biggest difference of a meta-optic compared to conventional optics is that meta-optics are completely flat and planar. Right. So if you have conventional lenses in a telescope, in a camera, DSLR, cell phone camera, they all have curvature and shape to them in order to control light. And basically, if the light passes through more material or less material, you get interference at the end of the, the refractive lens. And that, that's how you basically form a focus with a refractive lens. Now, with a meta optic, what you do is only by changing in-plane dimensions of these tiny nanostructures that have uh, feature sizes much smaller than the wavelength of light you're operating at, just by changing the in-plane dimensions, you can achieve many of the same things you would with a refractive lens. So by changing the in-plane dimensions of these nanostructures, you can cause constructive or destructive interference coming out of the back of this. But what it allows you to do is to do this in a way that you don't have any of the curvature of a refractive lens. So essentially you're getting rid of all of this additional material. Um, this is something Fresnel had already done with the Fresnel lens and making these things, um, making optics for, um, for lighthouses, these really big optics, and it was a way to save weight. But with the metasurface, it's really the conclusion all the way back to the simplest possible way you could do that with just one single physical height, only changing in-plane dimensions, so it's a completely flat and planar lens. And and the word meta, I think that, does that refer back to a, a sort of a broader um, family of, of materials called metamaterials? And and my understanding is that is that these are materials that are made up of, of tiny components 
um, often components that are the same and repeated in a in a in a lattice, let's say, on the surface. So, if you were to have a a close up look at a at a metal lens, would you see a, a number of tiny components that were repeated in some sort of pattern? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So the the term meta surface comes off of metamaterials, right? So metamaterials are man-made engineered materials that can end up giving you properties from this man-made material that you wouldn't get from just conventional materials, conventional lenses, um, conventional uh, optics. And with the metasurface, it's basically a metamaterial, but in metamaterials, you still have a, a bulk to the material. There's still three dimensions where you're varying the properties basically along the direction light is propagating. What the metasurface said is, well, metamaterials are fantastic. There are all of these amazing things that you can do. There were all kinds of demonstrations, um, but they're very, very difficult to fabricate and typically lossy because of this three-dimensionality to them. And so the metasurface said, how can I do this all in one single layer? And that was really the, the sort of brainchild from Federico Capasso, Nanfang Yu, some of the students in his group at the time, where they boiled this all down to a single surface. And as you mentioned, if you were to take a really zoomed view, you know, say 20,000, 30,000 X magnification of one of our metasurfaces, what you would see are these nanostructures. Now, they're typically arranged periodically, so there's an equal spacing between all of these nanostructures, but the dimensions of every one of those nanostructures will vary as you go across the metasurface. And this is then what allows us to impart the control over, over light. So um, for one of our products that is in a consumer cell phone type application, a single optic might have 10 million of these nanostructures comprising the optic. And so, Rob, what's the benefit of, of using meta-optics? And you, you mentioned um, that, that these lenses are very flat, and I'm guessing that's, that's very important in a situation where you don't have a lot of space, like, for example, a smartphone. Is, is, is that flatness a key feature of meta-optics and, and how they're used in, in practical applications? That's exactly right. I, I, if I were to sort of put it in the um, summary of the, the most important benefits of metasurfaces, it's simplicity and it's control. Uh, so the simplicity comes from the fact that as you make the metasurface and an optic completely flat, it actually allows you to combine the functionality of many different refractive or even a combination of refractive and diffractive lenses that would exist in a traditional optical module into this one single layer. Um, a lot of the additional optics that you have in a conventional camera are because you have curved lenses and you're trying to map to a flat image sensor. Once you have a flat optic and you're map mapping to a flat image sensor, you get rid of a lot of the additional aberrations and you can get rid of all of these additional lenses. So that's part of the simplicity. Um, the other piece of the simplicity is you can put very complicated optical functions in the metasurface because we're actually making these with nanoscale lithography. So we're using conventional lithography to manufacture lens, which means we're controlling light point by point at the nanoscale. 
And so this allows us to put complicated functions into just this one single surface. And then the other piece I mentioned is control. Um, that's one of the biggest benefits you get from the metasurface generally too, is control. Um, you know, conventional optics, especially refractive lenses, you can bend lens, uh, bend light, you can form a focal spot, form an image. With a metasurface, you're actually engineering the response to the electromagnetic wave that is incident upon it point by point. And not just the intensity of light, which is only one aspect of light, but all of the different aspects of light can then be controlled by properly engineering the shape and the size of that structure. So you can control with a metasurface polarization, you can control wavelength, um, in addition to these other things that conventional lenses simply ignore just by sort of the nature of how conventional lenses are manufactured. Now, Rob, you mentioned wavelength, and, and this is something that I've often wondered about these meta-optics. I can sort of imagine in my mind how they would work at a specific wavelength. You know, all those tiny structures on the surface would, would be uh, designed in such a way to respond to one wavelength of light. But how do you get your optics to, to respond to multiple wavelengths of light. Uh, is that a, it, was that a big early challenge in developing these materials? That's a, it's a great question. And it is, it is certainly a challenge. What we focused on first, and you're exactly right, the, the base meta surface and the base meta optic concept allows you to work really well and have all of this additional control, um, get rid of all of these additional lenses when you're working at a relatively narrow bandwidth. So call it LED, type bandwidth, um, and even better if you're sort of in like a Vixel or laser type bandwidth. And for our first set of products, that's where we focused. So we've focused on 3D sensing and in 3D sensing for consumer applications or automotive or any of these other applications, they're actually using narrow band sources. So it lets us bring those benefits of a meta optic, simplify the system, provide more control, um, and then work where kind of the base concept is already proven out, is efficient, is manufacturable, and so on. Um, however, there has been, and this is another big benefit of meta-optics compared to even conventional diffractive optics, there has been really great proof of concepts from Federico's group, uh, from other groups out there that have been working on this as well, to actually broaden the bandwidth over which they can work. So um, in many cases, even showing operation over the full visible bandwidth. So say from 450 nanometers in the blue all the way up to 650 nanometers out in the red. Now, the challenge comes in that you no longer can have these sort of simple structures, simple nanostructures in order to achieve the function you're looking to achieve. Um, so if you look at one of our optics that is working for single wavelength, what you would see from a top-down view are basically a set of circular cross-section pillars where we just change the diameter of those pillars as you go across the lens. Now, if you want to control all the wavelengths of light um, and you want to get something that operates over the full visible bandwidth, what you have to do is start imparting more complexity in the structures that you use. So you might have a circle, a cross, and a square, just as an example, are now the different components that make it up. And if you do that, you can actually not just achieve control over the wavelength and get all of the light to come to a single focal point over a broader bandwidth, 
but you can even achieve more control than you would from a conventional lens in many cases. Um, the, the biggest challenge then becomes things like efficiency. So it's still difficult to keep that performance. You may be able to get all of the light to come to the same focal plane if you do this, but to have a high efficiency across that full bandwidth is still an outstanding challenge. And then the manufacturability becomes a bit of a challenge because you're starting to get to features that are not easily produced with conventional lithography, um, features that have very small critical dimensions and so on. Um, so for us, the focus has really been on what are those applications out there today where it still is using single wavelength and we can provide substantial benefits. And then as the technology continues to mature, we can then bring that into to the company and go for sort of the more broadband type applications in the future. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> I've always wondered how you did that. Thanks for, for, for answering that question. So MetaLens was founded um, in 2016. You were a co-founder. Can you talk um, a bit about the origins of the company and how it's grown since? Sure. So with MetaLens, um, you know, in metasurfaces in general, what had been shown within the field um, from the original demonstrations out of Federico's group back in 2011 was sort of this base concept that with a single semiconductor layer, you could control all aspects of light. So you can make a flat lens, you can make things really simple. Um, but the efficiency had been, been very low in those early demonstrations, those early proof of concepts. Maybe one to 10% of the light hitting the lens was actually going into the function that you wanted it to go into. And so while it's a great proof of concept, that's not really going to lead to something that could be productized. Um, and so then in, in my PhD, what we really focused on uh, with myself and a few of the postdocs in the group and some other grad students at the time, um, like Wei Ting Chen and, and Reza, we really focused on how can we take this and make it more efficient make it more manufacturable, and make sure we're using materials that are relatively standard within the semiconductor industry. Um, and so in 2015, we started actually making these metasurfaces instead of using metal antennas like they were using in the early days out of completely dielectric materials. And so this let us get really high efficiency, you know, starting to push the efficiency from 10% into about 85, even some cases upwards of 90% of the light going into the function that you wanted it to. Um, and previously, because the efficiency was so low, there hadn't been any real demonstrations of very high quality images with a metasurface. You could show that you could focus light to a point. That was a great proof of concept again. But you know, besides um, just focusing light down to a point, there weren't really any high quality images that had been taken with a, with a metasurface. And so in 2016, we showed the first really high quality images that were taken with the metasurface because we had improved the process, we had improved the materials um, and the overall efficiency within the design. And so that first set of high quality images ended up getting us uh, on the cover of Science Magazine in 2016. And most of us were really thinking about an academic career at that time, sort of continuing on, um, you know, in, in the field. Uh, but what sort of in an unexpected and somewhat organic way happened was we started getting calls from some of the biggest 
companies in the world from cell phone makers, from lens makers. Uh, we started getting calls from uh, investors in the area. Um, and so we sort of sat and thought, well, if there was ever a time to see if this technology can exist outside of the lab, um, probably now is the time. So in, in 2016, we spun the company out of Federico's lab. Um, and then in, in terms of metal lens generally, you know, in those early days, there were about four or five of us. And we were really focused on, again, this, we were stuck on the problem of we have this great thing. We know that it can simplify optical systems, but it requires narrow band light for what has already been demonstrated. And they're really, at the time when we first spun the company out, other than niche scientific type applications, which could be quite interesting, there wasn't really a mass market for narrow band imaging, narrow band uh, illumination. But as often happens with with startups, it's it's just about timing as much as it is about anything else. Um, it was the year that the iPhone 10 had launched, and they were that was the first phone that had facial recognition. And for that facial recognition system, they were actually using narrowband near infrared light. And so 3D sensing within consumer applications really took off that year. And so in the early days, we were looking for what is the application of these things. We found that application. And then it was a matter of us really going and sort of focusing on that and building out the team, demonstrating the manufacturing process that this could scale from you know the tens of devices we were making in the lab. Um, and all the way up to today, where now from you know the five people that were sort of in the early days, we're now about 40 people here at MetaLens. Um, we have products in market and we have multiple foundries that have now shown the ability to manufacture our optics. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that, that's a great story, Rob. I mean, it must have been very exciting um, when you had that paper in, um, in science. I should say that uh, um, I, I can see Rob and I can see behind him on the wall <laughs> is a, <laughs> uh, a framed uh, image of the cover of science and the word metal lens on it. I mean, it must have been very exciting to, to suddenly realize, I mean, maybe you realized it already, um, you know, about the practical applications, but just to have all these people calling you up and uh, and expressing an interest in what you've done, I'm guessing, you know, with your head down in the lab for, for, yeah. for several years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was one of those things where I think in the back of all of our heads and always for the intro of a paper, you have to write, you know, all of the practical applications that this thing might have. And, you know, many times it almost feels like a just something you have to do for the intro of a paper and, Will it ever really, will you ever be really be working on any of those applications? Um, but as we started to get all of the, the interest from industry, it, it was a, a really good sign for us. And I think it was a, a realization that it is more than just kind of a, a concept in a lab at this point, and that it, it has the potential to really impact millions, if not billions of devices over time. And, and you mentioned, um, you know, that since 2016, you've developed several products. Can you can you give us a flavor of, of some of the things that you're that you've been working on? Sure. And again, for us, the focus has been on 3D sensing, um, especially within consumer electronics, um, generally in the area of smartphones, but really for any kind of consumer electronic type application. Um, I pointed out one of these 
particular applications like uh, face unlock that you have in smartphones. And what they actually do is they often um, have a Vixel array, so a vertical cavity surface emitting laser, an array of those. Um, and if you ever unlock your phone with your face, what it does is it projects out something like 30,000, 40,000 dots onto your face. Um, so it has a laser that gets projected onto your face, and then it has a near-infrared imaging lens that then collects back sort of the light that's been projected out. Uh, on the illumination side, that's actually one of the most complicated systems that really has had been at the time integrated into a cell phone. Um, so, you know, you have multiple refractive lenses, you had a diffractive optical element in there, and then you also often, because the, the thickness was too much for the cell phone form factor, even had a folded optical light path. So mirrors and prisms, um, a, a very complicated system. So what we do with a metasurface is actually to take the functionality of those multiple refractive lenses, the diffractive lens, put it all in one single metasurface, and then we can take that system and basically reduce the complexity by a factor of four and reduce the form factor to get rid of this sort of folded optical light path. So it's a simplification in terms of the number of lenses. It's a simplification in terms of how you manufacture the module. And if I were to put a sort of general theme on metasurfaces, often as you're simplifying systems or you're thinking about making taking lenses out of a system, you're thinking about, okay, well, what am I trading off against? Sure, I'm going to make it smaller. Sure, I'm going to make it simpler. But maybe my uh, efficiency will go down or my ability to control the size of the dots that I'm projecting out will get worse. Uh, but with a metasurface, you actually end up even gaining performance as you reduce the complexity. So that's, that's one example is on these dot pattern projectors, especially for what is called structured light, which is that particular form of 3D imaging. Um, another one is in doing time of flight systems. So this is another 3D sensing, form of 3D sensing. Uh, LIDAR that I think many, many people will be familiar with sort of falls into the class of time of flight 3D sensing. Um, and again, in these systems, you're looking to project out lasers onto a scene and then image them back. Uh, and we had actually, uh, back uh, about two years ago now, made an announcement with the company ST Microelectronics that ST Microelectronics is uh, a manufacturer of these 3D sensing time of flight systems. They have been making these for a number of years in their flight sense module. Um, they've sold something like a billion of those unit, a billion of those modules to date. And because of the simplification and improved performance that we could give them on both the imaging and on the illumination side, uh, they've switched to using Metasurface's technology, uh, MetaLens's technology in all of their modules going forward. So that would be two examples of, of products that we have out there on the market today. That, that's interesting. That time of flight system, if they've sold a billion units, that must be a... a is, is that a, cons a consumer system that's used in a, in a, in a mobile phone? <laughs> Have I used one without even knowing it on my phone, possibly? Generally, yeah, they, that, that is quite likely. Um, and it, it's sort of in, uh, I think this is uh, public information that, that they have as well. It's been in something like more than 150 different smartphone models to date. Um, and they sell it very broadly in, in all sorts of different consumer applications, but even in industrial applications as well. So 
this has been a, a really long running and successful module for them. And, you know, from the benefits that they see with meta optics from meta lens, uh, they're now, they've now transitioned to that for their modules going forward. I see. And how, how, um, so, so, sorry about getting getting stuck on this, but uh, I've really felt like I've learned something. How how is this lidar system used in a in a phone? I, I, my, my imagination isn't reaching that. So the the biggest use case, or sort of the most um, applied use case, is for actually aiding the visible camera. So in many cases, these phones have lidars on the back of the phone. So what we would call world facing lidar. Um, and one of the things that that allows you to do is to do autofocus of the visible ah, camera okay, or then right. <laughs> to do a through focus scan of the visible camera. So if you want to get these really beautiful bokeh effects from the visible camera or you want to pick exactly the right focal plane, then what you can do is use one of these 3D sensing systems and produce a really beautiful bokeh effect. Um, this also then one of the, the biggest applications that was advertised uh, as the LiDAR system was ultimately integrated into an iPhone was also for low light bokeh effects. Um, you know, if you have very low light situations, traditional autofocus becomes difficult and sort of inefficient. But if you have a laser that is being projected out, you can do these, these low light type of applications. Um, there's other use cases that, that have been being pushed for, things like AR or XR type applications. You know, you can now map a room uh, you can take 3D scans of of people and faces, um, you know. So for some enterprise type apps, you could scan your room and then pop around some virtual furniture once you've taken a 3D scan of your room and see how it looks. Uh, but really, the primary application to date has been for autofocus, making the visible cameras in a cell phone look more and more like the visible cameras from the. Uh, uh, like a DSLR, like a really high high end DSLR, but now packed into the smell f- cell phone form factor. Right. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so thanks for explaining that. So the the meta optics that that you produce, how how do you produce it? Do you use sort of standard semiconductor processing techniques, or uh, how how do you make those those tiny features on the surface? That's exactly right. And this is this is one of the beautiful aspects of the technology. Um, when it was conceived, it was conceived with the actual mass production process in mind. And so the additional constraint as the first thought experiment was was going on within Federico's lab was that this needs to be something that is producible with standard semiconductor processes and with just a single semiconductor layer. So not multiple layers. Um, and so the way that you end up making a metasurface is by conventional lithography, um, just like you are making the electronics in the really large semiconductor fabs today. And both the materials and the processes that we end up using are truly standard. Um, and more than that, actually, it's it's actually about the simplest process that the semiconductor foundries can imagine. So if you make an image sensor, if you make um, you know, an electronic chip, an SOC, something like that, you might have 30 different mask levels. You might have 30 different steps of lithography. Um, with the metasurface, you do this all with just one single step of lithography, 
one layer of material. Uh, and our feature sizes, when we're doing our 3D sensing, allow us to even use older generations of, of lithography at these foundries. So it really lets the technology go directly to scale. And I think that's been one of the biggest benefits for us. There's lots of examples of beautiful optical and photonics demonstrations in the lab that either needed sort of entirely new manufacturing processes to be imagined or simply never were going to be manufacturable. Um, here, we're leveraging a mature industry that already has all of the reliability and uh, control that you would need and, and the scale because the foundries are shipping billions of chips today. And that's where we make our metasurfaces in those foundries. So it sounds to me like developing new products um, may, may be not a, a problem for you. What, what what do you have coming up? Are you do you have any new products that uh, that that are coming out beyond uh, you know the applications that you've just spoken about? Yeah, absolutely. One of the the things that we're most excited about right now is something that we call Polar Eyes. Um, so Polar Eyes, we're able to with a metasurface not just control, as I mentioned in the beginning, not just control the intensity or the phase of light passing through a metasurface, but you can actually completely control the polarization of light as it passes through a metasurface. So I talked about these structures that uh, make up our standard 3D sensing optics where they just have these circular cross sections. If you take those and make them asymmetric, so you might have a length and a width to the structure now, just think of a rectangle, and then you vary sort of the size of the rectangles as you go across. And then perhaps you put in one additional degree of freedom, you let the rectangles even rotate with respect to each other. So now you sort of have a set of rotated rectangles that are your, are your nanostructures. Uh, you can start to completely parse out and separate polarization in a, a really controllable way with the metasurface. And now polarization imaging is something that has been known within in physics, known within optics for, for quite a number of years. But what you often do is there are sort of two big caveats to polarization imaging. You often need a very large system. So it might be, you know, 10 centimeters in terms of the overall form factor, which is not going to fit into consumer applications. And often in conventional polarization imaging, you actually filter. So you have sort of wave plates in addition to your conventional refractive lenses. And then you have a filter that will cut out about 50% of the light from an unpolarized scene. So with a metasurface, again, coming to this idea of simplifying systems, you can shrink the overall form factor in X, Y, and Z dimensions of something like a complete polarization camera, a camera that will give you the full set of polarization information from a scene. And you can shrink that form factor by about a factor of 5,000. So you can really put these now for the first time something that completely controls all of the polarization information, gives you a full polarization in image of the scene you're looking at with a form factor that fits into consumer devices. And then the way that we make these is the exact same way we're making our first generation of products. So it's in the semiconductor foundries. It's still a single step of lithography. It's really just a mask change. So we change the mask that we use to do the exposure in the litho process. And now we have a polarization imaging camera. 
Um, so that's one of the things that we're most excited about because there are known applications from all of the work that has been done in polarization imaging. And then you can start to bring those into consumer type applications. You can unlock an entirely new form of sensing to billions of devices for the first time. Uh, so that, that I think is one of the most exciting things, you know, in, in the first generation, it has been replacing optics in existing modules that are already out there. And now we're bringing something entirely new from the, from sensing into consumer devices. And how, how would it, a, a consumer, what benefit would be, what would, would a consumer get from having the, the capability to, to, to see polarization? Is it, I'm guessing it, it could help in terms of processing images. You could get rid of glare. You could maybe make uh, uh, an image sharper than it normally would be. Um, but are, are there any applications beyond that? Um, that yeah, there, there, there certainly are several. And, yeah, there, there certainly are several there. And I think that's uh, generally it falls into this class of within how right now, how machine vision, AI, um, and just generally having machines make decisions, the better information, the more rich the information you can bring in in the front end, the faster, the more efficient, better decisions that they're going to make on the back end. So, you know, making the scene more crisp, being able to do better object segmentation, um, all of those things are, are certainly things that help to impact machine vision. One of the, the first applications that we actually see is coming back to facial recognition. So I mentioned that these conventional facial recognition systems that have been integrated into cell phones today tend to be very um, complex. Complexity means that they're often very expensive and the form factor is still quite limited. Uh, so what we actually see is bringing facial recognition because you have a unique polarization signature to yourself that is different than a photo of you, that is different than a 3D mask of you. And so with that, I can uniquely identify you as you from your polarization signature. And then I can differentiate from someone trying to trick the system if they have a 3D mask or a really high quality 2D photo. Um, so I think one of the things is it allows you to shrink the form factor and the cost of these consumer facial recognition solutions. It allows you to make it more secure for the user because you have this additional layer of information that isn't there in the systems today. And that allows this to really proliferate into all, all cell phones essentially over time. Um, and then some of the other things that are, are quite interesting with polarization is there's also um, health applications. So things like detecting whether a growth on the skin is cancerous. If you look at it in intensity, you don't see much of a difference. But if you look at it in polarization, often these cancerous growths versus normal growths, um, they'll have some anisotropy to them, to the, to the growth itself. And that is something that sticks out with polarization. Um, so there are other applications like that. And then if you look uh, even for things like air quality or looking at particulates in the air, they have a unique polarization signature relative to just normal everyday air. Um, air quality is certainly something here in Boston that we're thinking about a lot with all of the the wildfires and everything coming in, there's a, a case where you could use polarization to even sense locally what is the air quality. Oh, that, that's great, Rob. And and before I let you go, um, I'd just like to ask you about your uh, the co-founder of MetaLens, um, Federico Capasso. And, you know, he's 
definitely one of the world's most prolific researchers in the field of photonics. I mean, you know, his career is 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 breathtaking. Um, I, I've been working on Physics World now for probably about twenty years, and you know, just the the sheer amount of of amazing stuff that we see from him. And, you know, we're always very keen to report on his work. Um, you know, I've always been a, a, a big admirer of him. And I'm guessing that working with him at Harvard was a, a formative experience for you. What is it about his approach to research that, that's given him this incredible breadth and depth um, in photonics? Yeah, it's it certainly was uh, a formative experience, and you know, with, with Federico, it definitely it, an experience is a great way to describe it because it's it's just a, it's quite the experience. So, um, I, I would say one of the things with Federico is really he sort of has this unbound curiosity is kind of the the primary thing where it's it's just wanting to dig deeper, wanting to keep going and figuring out you know what is really making all of this tick at the deepest level. Uh, so that's sort of the first thing is that he sets that up. But I think one of the things that really helped him over his career, you know, he first started out as a individual contributor at Bell Labs. And so he was working amongst kind of the world's most creative and um, intelligent people working on really hard problems. Um, so I think that was the, the first thing that kind of drove that continual curiosity from him. But then and as he spent more and more years at Bell Labs, he eventually became the, the VP and, and headed research at, at Bell Labs. So he was there to set up an environment that then really facilitated interesting work, interesting research. Um, and so when he came over to Harvard, I think in a way that doesn't often happen with, with professors, he sort of set up his lab very much in a way that he would set the environment. So he brought in smart people around him, uh, partly based off of his past work. He could attract really intelligent and creative people to come work in his group. Uh, he set up an environment where everything should be questioned, no matter who was bringing up the point, him, anyone else. Uh, so it kind of set that environment, but he still brought this sense of, of freedom, I think, in terms of when he was the VP of, of research, when he was heading research at Bell Labs, was that he kind of lets people actually foster their own ideas. So it wasn't a, a top-down, this is what we should do. It was very much bring a creative environment in, let people talk and question, and sort of then as someone latched on to an idea, then he he comes and start, gets more integrated with, with you and starts working more closely as you form the idea as you figure out where to follow it and, and what threads to go along. And so I think that's how he's been able to continue throughout his career to continue to produce really amazing things. It's because he trusts the people under him to come in his lab to come up with really interesting ideas. And I think for, if you look at his students, they go on to be professors. Um, he has another, another startup that came out of his group that, ability that sort of it, it can be daunting at times if you're in a new grad student especially that you're kind of in this environment and coming up with with your own ideas um, but ultimately it, it lends itself to making more great scientists um, so I, I think that's really what he's been able to do and then as I mentioned that continued curiosity I, if if I were to give an anecdote that kind of sums it up is that often when you get to the point where you did get one of these ideas, he got really excited by it. You started writing the paper. You would often send him a draft 
and maybe at, at 1 a.m. you get a, a an email back with all of the edits to your draft and you're probably asleep because you've been pulling a couple of all-nighters to finish everything up and get it out to him. And then you'd wake up and, you know, at 6 a.m. he would have sent you another email that says, how come you haven't responded to my draft yet? <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is someone who's already well accomplished in their career. It, it's one more paper is not going to do anything, you know, in terms of his accolades. And he still has that much passion in terms of when there's an exciting idea let's go with it. Let's run with it. And, uh, you know, that, that drive seeing that, um, that's another piece that really makes great scientists. Well, that's great. Thank, thanks for sharing that with us, Rob. And, and thanks so much for, for talking to me about Meta Lens. Um, I wish you and your colleagues all the best in the future. And, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you uh, and all the questions that you had. I think it was it's really great to talk about both what we're doing here at MetaLens and ultimately how we got started and, and the roots of this technology. I think there's quite a lot of exciting things that we still can do. Um, and so certainly looking forward to uh, talking again at some point. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Rob Devlin for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, please do check out our latest video, which looks at how researchers are using subatomic particles produced in Earth's atmosphere to study phenomena as diverse as volcanism and tropical cyclones. That video is called Predicting Natural Disasters Using Cosmic Muons, and you can find it on the Physics World website. Also on the website is a related feature article called Earth, Wind, and Water, How Cosmic Muons Are Helping to Study Volcanoes, Cyclones, and More. In that article, the science writer Michael Allen explores the burgeoning field of muography, which is something that we've covered a lot these days on Physics World. Physics World.